hello, Ross Sutherland here. Just before this episode begins, I wanted to very quickly plug a new piece of live performance that uh, is written by me and playing in London from the 8th until the 15th of March 2024. It's actually <clears throat> an opera. I wrote the libretto. The music was written by the composer Sarah Anglis. Uh, it's called Giants and it's playing at the Lindbury Theatre, part of the Royal Opera House. The story is set in 1783 and uh, it might be 1782, I can't remember. And it tells the true story of acclaimed surgeon John Hunter and vaudeville performer Charles Byrne, a.k.a. the Irish Giant. It's the story of their relationship and also the ensuing scandal regarding Charles Byrne's death and the theft of his corpse. Like all operas, it's full of agony and death and horror. Uh, it's going to be great. So, yeah, I, um, I can't quite believe the words I'm saying here. But the, the opera I wrote is playing in London in association with the Royal Opera House, 8th to the 15th of March, 2024. For tickets and information, check the link in the show notes of this episode. Thank you. A couple of months ago, I started to experience auditory hallucinations. Specifically, I. I started hearing a baby crying in my right ear. I say a baby, but I do actually know this baby. I recognise the cry. It's my son, Elliot. Just after Elliot was born, I lost the hearing in my right ear. The loss happened pretty much overnight. I just woke up one morning and it was gone. At the time, I joked that losing half my hearing was going to be a blessing when it came to the new baby. I'll only have to listen to half as much crying, I joked. How wrong I was. Because instead of getting half, I get it five times more on a bad day. I feel like I hear it all the time. As you might imagine, it's uh, very hard to edit together a radio program when you can't tell what sounds are real and which ones are in your head. So I've not been able to return to work since it happened. Sometimes I think it's uh, the stress of this that's making my condition worse. In addition to the hallucinations, I also have this wall of tinnitus running down my right-hand side. My tinnitus tends to get worse when I experience lots of high-frequency noises, which means recently I've started hearing my baby crying in traffic. It's a bit like a detuned radio, the controller hovering right on the edge of a station, all the voices hidden just on the other side. Hearing impairment. Just in general, sensory impairment can cause hallucinations. My actual baby could be hundreds of miles away and still right there, buried somewhere in that snowbank of static. I'll hear him wake and call for me. You're losing a sense, and yet your brain is kind of like not wanting to give up on the sense, like it keeps on creating this information, even though um, there shouldn't be any information anymore, or at least less information. If you think of phantom limb, it's kind of the same idea, like there's something missing, there's no input coming anymore, but yet you feel like you're still having the limb that's missing. Okay, 
So next I need you to put these headphones on. Okay. Don't put them on yet. Um, just hold them. Are you right-handed? Yes. Okay, so... So far, I've had an MRI scan and four audiology exams and counting. As yet, no one has been able to explain to me why my hearing vanished like it did. Now, in a minute, I'm going to play some short tones into the headphones. Okay. Every time you hear a sound, I want you to tap the button as soon as you hear it. Got it. You can put the headphones on now. Whenever I take one of these bleep tests, something strange happens. Each new beep keeps echoing over and over. Very quickly, it becomes impossible to tell which beeps are the real ones and which ones are just in my head. My brain has started struggling to separate sound from memory. Is this the same thing that's happening to me when I hear that phantom baby cry? It seems like there is a memory part involved there. So uh, a lot of people, for example, report that they're hearing songs from their childhood. Christmas carols or something are a common theme or um, uh, national anthems are also a very common song to hear. And also, based on my own research, we saw that there is more activity in the hippocampus or the parahippocampus, which is a region that is involved in memory. It's unsettling to hear the past and the present simultaneously and to be incapable of distinguishing one from the other. You're not creating a new baby, you're hearing a recording of your own baby. See, if I knew that I was hearing a recording, then I think the sound could almost give me comfort in a way. It would let me feel as if he was with me, even when he wasn't. But it's, it's very hard to remember that the cry isn't real. Even when the sound seems to be emanating from an electricity generator in a back alley. I know that sounds stupid, but it doesn't matter where the sound's coming from. When a baby cries, you run to it. I had a patient once who likes to do Sudokus to just keep himself busy so he doesn't uh, listen to the music that's going on in his head. And I also know that some people um, hear the doorbell ringing constantly and they keep on going to the door. And um, there, one of the recommendations would be um, get a light doorbell. So if you don't see the light going off, don't go to the door. So there are some ways to deal with it, but generally speaking, uh, as of now, I think the best way is to improve the hearing and hope that research will come up with some new ideas. So let me turn your chair to face the wall here. Okay. I'm going to stand behind you like this, and in a second I'm going to say a series of words, okay? Okay. And after each word, I want you to say the word back to me. If you can't fully understand the word, just take your best guess, or you can just say pass. Okay. Anchor. Anchor. Answer. Answer. Future. Chair. Mountain. Mountain. Rodeo. Radio. Every time I experience one of these hallucinations, it's as if my brain is autonomously writing me a poem. It's taking a bunch of random observations, a door slam, a traffic light, a gust of wind, and finding a way to reinterpret them to uncover some hidden memory buried in the noise. Maybe I have to find a way to appreciate these accidental poems, to own them in some way. Good. So in a second, I'm just going to remove this wall here. Okay. And behind the wall, there's going to be a forest, okay? Okay. Now it's going to be quite loud in the forest, and there's not going to be a tremendous amount of light either. It's always dark in the forest long before the sun sets. Okay. You still have the button, don't you? Uh, yeah. And every time you hear a voice that isn't there, you give it a click, okay? Okay. 
one click for every time you hear his voice. Got it. <coughs> I'm going to move the wall now. Whatever is happening in my brain, the scientific explanation can only go so far. There's always going to be gaps in the explanation, just as there are gaps in my hearing. A poem, even one that you don't understand, it's not such a bad place to hang out. You just have to slow down and let yourself dream a little. These echoes that you're hearing, it can make it hard to know what's real. I understand that. Yeah. But it's not going to stay like this. That whining, rushing noise you hear now, it doesn't leave, but it does retreat. Eventually, you're going to get a hearing device that works for you. You'll find a way to work again, making your weird little audio dramas once more. You know how I know that? Because, um, we're in one right now. Bingo. You went out on your bike one day to record the sound of this forest here. All my equipment on this table is just foley sounds recorded in your kitchen. That's a ladle, cheese grater, etc. This conversation is based on your first hearing test, but I'm not the actual audiologist who gave you the exam. No. I'm your wife. Right. Reading a script you wrote for me. Right, OK. I think I get it. I'm basically hearing an echo, aren't I? This is, this is an echo of something that already happened. In a way. The strange thing about sound, though, is that most of what we experience as sound is an echo. Whenever anyone speaks, most of what we hear is the voice bouncing off the walls, off the furniture. Take away the sound of the echo and there's very little to be heard at all. Actually, talking of echoes... Go on. When I finally learn to hear again and work again, what happens to all those hallucinations of mine? Hearing my son when he isn't really there, do those echoes disappear too? Do you want them to? It's, uh... It's complicated. If that echo was to vanish completely, I do think I would miss it. Does it vanish, I mean? I think the best way to find out is to continue with the test, don't you think? Uh, okay. You have your button. Yeah. You know what to do. The forest is there for as long as you need it. Right then. In your own time. So, I am 17, I am walking through the streets of Beverly Hills on a Sunday afternoon uh, through the residential section, and all of a sudden I start seeing in front of me a bunch of smiley faces, uh, more and more. Uh, next thing I know, I can't see in front of me because it's just smiley faces. Uh, so I stop, and then I'm thinking, well, what if this never stops? What if the rest of my life is seeing smiley faces in front of me and not being able to see anything else? And then I wonder if I'll die like this. And then I wonder if I'm, maybe I'm already dead, and I'm buried, and I'm in the ground, stuck in my body for the rest of eternity seeing 
nothing but smiley faces in my field of vision. And then my friend taps me on the shoulder and they all go away. Uh, and we keep walking. January in the year 2000, I'm in Havana, Cuba, and I'm on the roof of the Hotel Inglaterra in the Old Town, and I've just drunk a mojito, and it was only one mojito, and I'm looking out across the bay where there is a giant statue of Christ looking back at me, and the sun's going down, and as I look at Christ, I swear to God, he winked at me. It was like a flash of a aeroplane light, that kind of bright, blinking white light, which came directly from Christ's eye. And it happened once, and a jolt went through my body, and I felt like I had had a religious experience, frankly. I carried on looking. I thought maybe that's some kind of trick of the light or some kind of gimmick where Christ is wired up to flash his eyes at you. And I just carried on looking. My family was there with me. I was just staring directly at Christ because I wanted to know whether what I'd seen was real or a hallucination or a message from God frankly. Um, I'm not a religious person. I have even less faith in the organised religion of Christianity. I was in a fairly... I was in a... I was at a point in my life when I was genuinely in question about the future and what I would do and um, I think I was looking for a sign, to be honest. Not sure what the sign was, certainly wasn't expecting it from a Christian deity. But yeah, I just carried on staring at this giant Christ statue for another 20 minutes or so, just wanting to catch a glimpse of another wink. But it didn't come, it was a once, it was a one-off event and um, I think it was intended just for me. I had just been at a three-day music festival where I'd had about three hours sleep, I think, the entire time. I was driving back from the festival through the South Island of New Zealand, which is very uh, national parks, rural, that sort of thing. No street lights, no housing for miles and miles. And as I was driving, I could see figures outside the car windows to either side, walking through paths in the forest. The figures were holding lanterns. They were elegant. They were going at a stately pace and weaving through the forest on their way, as far as I understood it, to go to bed. So, shocker, I was hallucinating about sleeping when I was sleep deprived. Anyway, so I was gazing out to the left and right of me every so often, just sort of seeing these figures heading parallel to me in the car. I remember wondering why they were out here in the middle of what was basically nothing but National Park in New Zealand, and where their possible campsite or homes were. But they would disappear and I wouldn't notice them for a while because I was also hallucinating mattresses. Mattresses that were coming towards me as I was driving down the road, only to eventually resolve into things like a patch of water. The mattresses were bare, there were no sheets, no pillows, no bed stands or anything like that, just the mattress. So as I was driving, I was driving sort of speeding up and then having to slow down to an almost crawl and then speeding up and having to slow down to a crawl until I realised that what I was witnessing was actually something completely different. I don't know 
how much I remember the fact that I knew that I was hallucinating. I think I knew in the moment at the same time as the hallucination was generally occurring because I think after the, with the people, after a little while I was like, no, there's, there's no way there's people out, out here, so I'm just making this up. And obviously with the mattresses, um, I had to act as if they were real until the moment that they stopped being real, which is a strange thing to do. And so I guess I knew that I was um, in strife. Yeah, I don't know whether there's much logic that you apply in the, in the moment when things are happening. You just sort of have to accept them and then react accordingly. I was having an, not an MRI, the one where you go through the big donut machine like in Akira and they put um, a dye into your veins. And um, when they injected the dye into my veins, my body suddenly started to feel very, very hot. And um, for some reason, as a consequence of this, I started to taste pear drops extremely strongly on my palate. This ramped up until the room was made out of pear drops. Um, all I could see was pear drops, and pear drops were coming through my ears directly into my brain. Um, and then within seconds, it was as if the whole universe was made out of the taste of pear drops. And I started shrieking, and they shut the MRI down. It was the summer of 2002, it was a Friday night and I was running late to see friends at a pub in London. A friend of mine said he'd drive me there because I was running late, but we got hit in traffic and we were even later. Um, and I remember getting increasingly more anxious as the delay continued and continued and I was getting later and later. My friend dropped me off a bit far away from the pub so I could kind of run through the streets. By the time I got there I was apologetic and probably a bit sweaty and I remember standing outside the pub talking to my friend Martin. I might have bought a pint already, I can't remember if, if I had or not, but as I was chatting to him, him just standing against the wall, he then just turned into a lizard. Right in front of me. It was a split-second hallucination, but I genuinely saw him turn into a... or what I thought was him turn into a lizard. And then he was back to normal, obviously, after that. <laughs> um, but it kind of really freaked me out. I don't remember much else about that night, apart from the fact that I think I decided straight away that the only way I could deal with this was to get incredibly drunk. So I did, and I don't remember what happened the rest of that night, but I do think I was behaving quite oddly. And the morning afterwards, I remember I was quite scared, and I think I carried that fear around for a good couple of years, really, because I hadn't understood, or I still don't, to be honest, understand what had happened or why. But I did lose a bit of confidence and I suppose I gained a bit of fear after that for a couple of years, I think. Um, and I also resolved again, I think, to almost medicate myself by just drinking quite a lot in the aftermath of that bit. Um, the second time it happened, again, I'd been drinking quite a lot. I was in Glasgow for a weekend. And I'd had a heavy night out on the day before. Uh, then I was getting a flight back on the Sunday. And I remember getting on the plane and taking my seat. And both this time, like the previous time, I was feeling quite anxious and thirsty and I don't think I had any water. And then again, everyone on the plane just in a split second turned into a frog or a lizard in front of me, some sort of amphibian. All the people sort of facing forwards on this busy flight, just for a split second, turned into like a lizard or frog-like creature, and then turned back to the normal cells straight away afterwards. Uh, again, I was scared a bit, I was, but I, and I kind of sat with my head in my hands for the flight, which luckily was a very short flight. 
but I remember being more aware of what happened this time because it had already happened previously. So I was freaked out, but probably not as much as the first time. I was able to deal with it a bit more easily. And thankfully, that was the last time that's happened to me. Uh, I think that's it. Psychotic hallucinations, many to choose from. Probably the most interesting one was the one where I became convinced that ninjas were scaling the outside of my house and that they'd been sent to kill me by... Um, somebody who I'd had a very trifling disagreement with actually which is almost kind of worrying and um, I could hear the ninjas creeping up the masonry outside my house and I could hear like tapping as they were testing the glass outside and uh, I would occasionally stick my head out of the window and obviously the ninjas would shrink into the shadows in between the masonry when I did this. Um, I could probably write a book about uh, psychotic hallucinations, to be honest. Post-pregnancy, um, I went through a very hypervigilant stage. And I started experiencing that sense of being watched at night, of things being outside the kitchen window, that kind of feeling. And inside the house, I would have a sense that there were things under the beds, like little demons, so what I'd hallucinate would be like a little grey demon with a quite a round face, little sharp teeth like a shark's tooth, and wide-spaced horns, who would be watching me is mostly what it was doing. And the moment I would feel like it was there and look properly, it, would, it was gone. It was um, resolved into just shadows under the bed or in the pantry. It's gone now. Maybe there's a demon that only haunts people with children under six months old. So about 15 years ago, I decided to lock myself in the house for a week in an ultimately successful attempt to get sober uh, on the second or third day I'd done a lot of shaking of um, uh, there was a lot of unpleasant things going on and I sat in the front room and suddenly the room was full of spiders small dark spiders with legs equidistantly distributed around the edge of their bodies and no definable front or back um, which were everywhere like moving just slowly wandering around everywhere except where I was directly looking at that moment like they weren't covering everything they weren't in a like one single unbroken mass they were just sort of randomly dotted about probably one in every square foot of space or so in any case I chose to interpret them as friendly and they never came closer than maybe a foot away from me and they were there for quite a while um, and they just kind of stood around um, almost like a vigil just waiting um, maybe they were waiting for me to live or die I have no idea but I knew they were there and I really didn't mind General autism slash neurodiversity ones are they're, they're sort of basically like milder synesthetic ones. So they're they're more towards like a narrowing of narrowing of inward focus and a blurring between my own subjective experience of the world and the actual 
material reality of it. So I'll often, um, you know, kind of think that music is playing, especially for me, and uh, you know, the interior experience of my mind, or um, um, you know, I'll kind of feel that. Um, saying certain phrases or doing certain rep repetitive physical movements has like an incantation effect on reality so I, I can be very routine oriented I, I don't really know any other way to describe this um, there are loads of them though um, sometimes I'll like I'll, I'll deliberately uh, stimulate myself and you know, people refer to this as stimming which I find quite irritating but I'll like to touch certain kinds of fabric or make myself have certain smells to um, to arise certain thoughts or um, situations or sometimes kind of sometimes like psychogeographic experiences like pursuing very um, routine routes around certain places or, or ritually touching certain places will cause them to um, uh, evoke or revisit old memories. Um, no idea if any of this kind of stuff makes sense. I spend my life trying to make sense of these experiences. Uh, my conclusion is that um, people's sensory experiences and the way to explain them and what they mean and their, their, their uh, touch points with reality are actually really, really varied and poorly expressed by language. But the experience of expressing them via language, art and music or whatever, um, is essentially a way of experiencing, making sense of them, um, making them more real, understanding what is and isn't real. Um, the brain is full of phantoms and sometimes you welcome them inside and sometimes you try and expel them. But uh, maybe sometimes expelling one phantom just creates space for old new ones to come in. Uh, thank you for listening. This has been my TED Talk. Thank you to everyone who sent me a recording about their own personal hallucinatory experience. I put the call out on social media shortly after I finished writing the previous episode and receiving those stories into my inbox was, uh, it was an extremely affecting experience for me. I'm, I'm extremely grateful to everyone who shared their hallucinations. It, it's such an intimate thing to share. I don't think I realized that at the time, but it is, it's, it, it's such an intimate thing to share. It's one's own private reality. As time's gone on, my hallucinations have receded slightly. I alluded to this briefly in the piece at the start of the episode, but since getting a hearing aid, I've actually been hallucinating a lot less. Well, actually, it wasn't until my second hearing aid that things improved. My first hearing aid was a really cheap one, and that somehow made everything worse. It helped me hear my surroundings again, but everything sounded like a really terribly produced podcast. The EQ was all wrong, but the passing cars all sounded like shopping trolleys. You heard this hiss after a sound. Almost as if the waveform hadn't been properly trimmed. I remember hearing the birds on the bridge near my house and thinking that they sounded like they'd been imported from an extremely low-res sound effects library. And I would know. Listeners, I would know, because I import sounds from cheap, low-res sound effects libraries. I make soundscapes where samples are overzealously trimmed and sloppily assembled. I mean, I don't do a shit job on purpose. Obviously, I, uh, I've always tried to mix my podcast to the best of my abilities. But regardless, 
of whether I ever hit my own high standards. Nine years of making this podcast has, it's just, it's turned me into an audio snob, basically. And I couldn't wear that first hearing aid without provoking the audio designer part of my brain into a state of permanent professional rage. I could see a future where I learnt to live in that crappy sound world, but that future could not be a future where I continued to work in podcasts or any form of audio design. Thankfully, though, uh, my second hearing aid was a lot better. And though it's still difficult using a hearing aid when editing audio, it is entirely possible, obviously, because, you know, you're listening to it right now. I, uh, I still hear strange things in my head, particularly in bed when I'm not wearing my hearing aid. I still hear Elliot crying sometimes and dash into the nursery to find him fast asleep. I hear other things too. Ghosts knocking on my front door. Voices. Sometimes I hear voices. It often sounds like my wife's voice, but it's like she's talking in some kind of made-up language. It still freaks me out sometimes, but just like the recording you heard just now, the story about the friendly spiders, I too, uh... I'm choosing to interpret these hallucinations as benign echoes of encouragement from something beyond, something hidden on the other side of consciousness. I'm trying to think of it as a, well, a kind of imaginary advice. If you've listened to the previous episode of this podcast, you'll know that uh, I've spent the last few years worrying about losing my grip on reality. The two stories I told in the previous episode were both false starts, you could say. They're moments where I falsely mistrusted my senses. Things that I labelled hallucinations subsequently turned out to be real. Now, I must admit there is some sense of catharsis in finally being able to make the call correctly. At the very least, it gives these two podcast episodes a more satisfying narrative shape. Thank God that the third hallucination story subverted the format established by the first two. I will say it is reassuring to, uh, to discover one's life naturally follows a three-part joke structure. Of course, of all the things to hallucinate, additional copies of my baby isn't really that bad, really. Ultimately, it's just more of him, isn't it? To finish this episode, I wanted to play you one more thing. Something that genuinely really helped me come to terms with this new situation of mine. And I think it works nicely as an ending here as well. Um, it's a clip from this show from eight years ago. You see, the next episode of Imaginary Advice after this one is my 100th episode. One of the things I've been doing recently is going back through the archive and re-listening to all bits of the show. I was thinking of making maybe like a bonus clip show episode where I cut together some of my favourite bits from the last nine years. So anyway, I was skipping through the archive, right? And I came across an old episode. I think it's from 2016. Um, it's basically a personal essay that I wrote on the theme of Freddy Krueger. And I remember sitting in that dark room one day as Carl Hartshorn told me that Freddy was in fact a child murderer returned from hell to kill children in their dreams. A quivering ham sandwich in my hands. The concept is just unimaginably scary. Like Freddy isn't lurking in your garden or under your bed. He's in your head. He kills you from the inside out. The episode is called 
Hug Freddy. It's episode 25 of the podcast. In the episode, I tell the story of how I came to watch Nightmare on Elm Street 3 when I was nine years old and how that experience ended up giving me nightmares for the rest of my childhood. Short version, a video rental gave it to me by mistake when I tried to rent Labyrinth. I watched the whole thing in fast forward, thinking it was a trailer. Then when I inevitably started having nightmares, Freddy Krueger was always moving super fast. And silent too, he was silent as well because of the whole watching in fast forward, which meant I, I never got to hear him say, bitch. Which is a shame, you know, it, it, would have, it would have provided some much needed levity to the situation. Anyway, he was fucking terrifying. Now, I, I know all this stuff anecdotally, but I'd completely forgotten that I'd made a whole 35-minute podcast episode about it. The entire thing had just left my brain completely. So listening back, it didn't even quite feel like it was my voice anymore. I mean, it was me, but it also it wasn't me. This is what happens after 100 episodes. Anyway, I was enjoying listening back to the episode, but, but the, the end of the podcast ended up taking me by surprise. Throughout the episode, right, I've been talking about fear. Fear being something that lives in our imagination. One way that we try to control our fears is by shining a light on them, trying to bring the fearful object from our imagination into the real world so we can potentially rob it of its power over us. So what was once filled with supernatural menace now appears utterly banal once brought into the light. Um, like, for example, like turning on a light, like turning on your bedroom light and suddenly the sinister thin man by the window turns back into a hat stand. Or how one might overcome a fear of flying by learning about fluid mechanics or overcome a fear of snakes by holding one and embracing the the overwhelming boredom of it all that's the idea anyway just like how in every nightmare on elm street film the hero ends up grabbing freddy krueger in their dream then wakes up in order to drag freddy into the real world where he's mortal at the end of the episode i tell the story of my own attempt to conquer my fear of Freddy, which ultimately fails. But in that failure, I, uh, I learned something, something about how this fear will always be a part of me, and that's okay. But to hear those words now, in 2024, now it sounds like I'm talking specifically about these new auditory hallucinations of mine and how they will always be a part of me and that's okay i realize i'm coming dangerously close to paraphrasing the whole thing here so before i say any more i'm just going to play the clip here it is when i was 13 i finally found a way back to elm street i was babysitting one night when i saw that the first film was scheduled to be on telly at midnight I decided to stay up and watch it, knowing that this would be the best way to overcome my fear. I would face Freddy, I would see him die, and then I would no longer be afraid. Sure enough, the plot went through its cycle. Lead girl Nancy makes a plan. She goes to sleep. She finds Freddy. She hugs him, wakes up, brings him into the real world, where she runs him through a series of Home Alone style booby traps. I, I remember forcing myself to laugh so hard for that sequence. It's not funny, but it had to be funny. Like I knew that, I had to believe that. I had to make Freddy silly, otherwise this whole confrontation would all be for nothing. Gets to the end. Freddy is set on fire. He's defeated. Happy ending. Everyone Freddy has killed magically comes back to life. And I think to myself, phew, it's over. And then, just as Nancy's resurrected mother 
is waving her daughter goodbye on the porch of her house. Freddy's hand appears and pulls her back through the window, and that's the end. Oh my god, it's executed so badly in the film. The mother clearly turns into a mannequin in a wig, and the window she's pulled through is weirdly small. You watch her now as an adult, and it is funny. It's funny. It's like fake legs. Zip! There, straight through the window. Like you, If you watched it, like you will laugh out loud. When I watched it, age 13... I did not laugh out loud. I just sat there, frozen, staring at the TV all the way to the end of the credits. Like, I should have seen it coming, but I knew there were sequels all the same. I couldn't work it out. Like, both me and Nancy, like, we both confronted Freddy. We pulled him into the real world. Why had the plan failed? Well, perhaps it didn't fail entirely. That still was the night that I could finally reconcile Freddy Krueger as a piece of fiction. Like, I couldn't do that before. You can't hug something and fast forward. But now I could finally bring him into my world. And that much was true. But there's a caveat to that breakthrough. A little extra sentence added on to the end. Fear always comes back. Freddy always comes back. And sure, that sentence is probably just producer Robert Shea of New Line Cinema just trying to make sure that things are set up for a sequel but in doing so Robert Shea might have accidentally hit upon something important the rules we use to defeat fear never ever work that irrational fear that we tried to confront and rationalize it always returns we believed that by confronting these fears we were bringing them into the real world when in actual fact there is no real world the real world is just another part of the dream you can't separate the left brain and the right brain that's scientific fallacy we are always dreaming trapped between what's real and what isn't the dream is everything the best we could hope for moments of lucidity there's no way to fully wake up, to escape it, but we can control it. It's a tender feeling, hearing this echo of the past, this familiar voice comforting me helping me through a problem that he doesn't even know that I have. I don't know if I can put it into words yet, but re-hearing myself say these things, I felt something change in me. Um, maybe for the first time since I started hearing voices, I felt something loosen in my chest. I think Possibly for the first time in two years, I, I finally let myself breathe all the way out. I was giving myself permission to leave one foot in a dream. To accept that my life has always been half conjured from my imagination, even before I started hearing things. So yeah, uh, that took me by surprise. I think I actually gave myself some advice. Who'd have thought <laughs> after 99 episodes, I would finally make sense of the title of this podcast. Not just once, but twice in the same episode. That feels, that feels like a sign, doesn't it? Maybe a sign to keep going a little while longer. At the time, I rarely know what the fuck I'm talking about on this podcast, but maybe every single episode will make sense one day. I do like the sound of that. I look forward to abusing that willful optimism and using it to justify some completely demented podcast episodes over the next year. <laughs> Another reason to keep making the show, 
producing the podcast is actually helping me distinguish real sounds from imaginary ones. Just in the short time that I've been back at work, I, I've got better at separating the real sounds from the ones in my head. Clue, the sounds in my head don't create waveforms on the screen in front of me. So that's useful. Little by little, thanks to this podcast, I'm slowly learning how to listen all over again. I don't know what I'm going to hear down the line, but I'm looking forward to finding out. Imaginary. My name is Ross Sutherland. All this time you have been listening to Imaginary Advice. The first piece that you heard in this episode was originally broadcast on BBC Radio 4 on the programme Shortcuts. It was produced by Eleanor McDowell for Falling Tree Productions. Also thanks to Dr. Theresa Marshall at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands who spoke to me about auditory deafferentation and whose voice you heard several times during that opening piece. Also, thanks again to everyone who sent me their hallucination stories. Every single one of them touched me dearly, and I'm, I'm so grateful for those. Thanks also to Jeremy Wormsley, who provided some additional music for the episode, specifically the music that you heard during the hallucination stories. For more of Jeremy's music, go to jeremywormsley.com. Finally, uh, thanks to you for listening and all oh, supporting the show too. Hey, did you know that Imaginary Advice is entirely funded by listener support? If you like the show and you want it to keep going for another 100 episodes, uh-huh, then maybe consider joining my Patreon. You get a bonus podcast every month, plus there's other perks for higher support tiers. Go to patreon.com forward slash Ross G Sutherland for more information or... To make a one-off donation to the show, go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash imaginaryadvice. I'll be back next month with the 100th episode of the podcast. But that's all from me. Thanks for listening.